Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing The Thing. Who Goes There was written by John W. Campbell and was published in 1938 under the pseudonym Don A. Stewart. And The Thing was directed by John Carpenter and came out in 1982. This is a patron request. Our wonderful patron and friend, Deanna, requested that we do this episode. This is one of her all-time favorite horror films, and I actually saw it for the first time with her and her husband, John. Yeah, yeah. Which was really cool, Um, so we're very excited to do this episode. That was just a couple years ago, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was a fun time. I hadn't seen it in a long time when we sat down and watched it, so. Yeah, most listeners know that I don't really watch a lot of horror, and I haven't seen a lot of classic horror films, so uh, yeah, this was a newish experience for me, and I really enjoyed it. Yes, and uh, for, <laughs> I doubt there's going to be as many people disappointed about this as maybe they were about the the Ring adaptation we chose, uh, but we're obviously going with the John Carpenter adaptation of this novella instead of the, what, 1950-something adaptation, uh, which was called The Thing from Another World. Mm -hmm. But we will be discussing that in a bonus episode, along with the original Japanese adaptation of The Ring. Yes. uh, Which will be coming out in just like a week or two. Yeah, because this month is spooky month and we're doing The Ring and the Thing. That's our thing. And the bonus is The Ring and the Thing also. Part two. (laughs) Part two. (laughs) But also both of them became the original. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, so, you know, we, we already said this is a, a classic horror movie, right? And I think its history is really well known. When it came out, it was a flop. Yeah. And there's a lot of different reasons or people speculating on it. One of the big ones is that E.T. came out just a little bit before this. Like two weeks like before. Like two weeks. And everyone's like, aliens should be nice. We only like <laughs> nice, cute aliens now. They shouldn't be disgusting monstrosities. We hate you, John Carpenter. Uh, and so nobody saw it. It was also critically panned. Like critics really didn't like it. And um, it didn't make a lot of money. So so uh, negative on all across fronts. the board. It did terribly, <laughs> which is so disappointing because John Carpenter has said this is like his favorite of his movies that he's made. Now, obviously, after its uh, home video release, it found kind of a cult following. And now, like, it's kind of had a critical reanalysis where a lot of people really acknowledge and appreciate all the good things about it. Yeah. But it took a while to get to this point. It's really interesting to think about all the things that were working against this movie. Yeah. You know, like like you said, E.T. coming out, maybe the cultural attitude of the time. I was reading that some people were saying, oh, because like it was a recession, like people really didn't want something that was like down, depressing, nihilist, mm. like... <laughs> Everything is awful, you know? Yeah. See, I think it's funny because I you hear a lot of these stories about older movies, right? People hated it when it came out. And then it found more of an audience, right? I feel like we have more of the reverse problem now where a lot of times movies will come out with like really high like Rotten Tomatoes scores and like are generally really well reviewed. And then like two years later, everyone's like, what was that movie? Yeah, we kind of hated that, right? We all hated it. We all agree that we all hated it all along, right? (laughs) I feel like so we've kind of had a flip of that now. Yeah. Where I feel like generally at least critics usually agree when a movie is like pretty good, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But a lot of audiences will be like, no, we actually hate this movie that you like. (laughs) 
<laughs> and then everyone's like, yeah, no, no, no. We always said that. <laughs> yes, we always hated it. Yeah, super interesting that this like was just universally hated when it came out but because now it's so beloved. And even I knew before watching it, like, oh, everybody loves this movie. This is a great film. Yes. Uh, so also all that being said, there's such a um, like a fan base for this movie there's been so much that's like been talked about like behind the scenes stuff like there's just a lot of behind the scenes like stories about this movie and the filming of it like they filmed on sound stages that were essentially meat lockers that were like freezing (laughs) all the time Uh, a lot of stuff about the special effects which we will get into it to a degree all that being said if we don't mention your favorite fact about this movie or your favorite theory or whatever Uh, I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, we're comparing the book and the movie, and that's kind of what we do on this podcast. And, you know, there were there have been so many episodes where we really wanted to get into the nitty gritty and more of the details of what we loved about the book or the movie. But we just don't have the time. So we're more of the recapping and comparing um, I know there's a lot of really cool content out there about this movie. Though. So we probably won't mention that, oh, this special effect was achieved by uh, bubble gum. SpaghettiOs. SpaghettiOs. <laughs> just kidding. It's not really a SpaghettiOs, but <laughs> I this did read blood they use, splatter like, was actually just SpaghettiOs. Uh, KY jelly or something. <laughs> You you did read that? I, I think so. I'm not shocked. Like <laughs> I, I think that is the fun thing about like special effects is they just are like, oh, this substance is perfect for this thing. Yeah. Right. And it's just kind of a, a figuring <laughs> it out. But yeah, so we won't, probably won't get too much into the uh, background and, and fun, fun fact details, but we will a little bit, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> Let's start with the movie's opening shots. We yes. see a spaceship. We see a pretty good looking spaceship. Yeah, they're really like letting us know from the beginning that like it's aliens. Yeah, which I was kind of like, how necessary. I know. I didn't think it was. Is needed. that shot of like you're already in the theater. Asses are in seats like you don't have to be like, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Also, it's a remake of the thing from another world. It's yeah, probably an alien. Probably. <laughs> uh, yeah. So we just get a shot of it crash landing. And then we are now in 1982, even though we don't know when that ship crashed. And we get this like really interesting beginning with a helicopter chasing a dog and trying to kill the dog, Adina. Yeah. Listen, as new dog owners, I'm very <laughs> upset about this. Yes, if you didn't listen to our last episode or check our Instagram feed, we have a new dog. Yes. Her name's Arwen, and this is a very traumatizing movie for a dog to watch. In fact, she did get scared watching this movie. <laughs> yes. I think because of all the dog barking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For one scene in particular, she was very upset. And, and I had to comfort her and assure her that nothing would ever happen to her. You were very sweet to her. <laughs> uh, but it's just, the beginning is so, like, weird. Like, what is the situation, right? Eventually, the chopper chases this dog into an American, like, research compound. And the chopper lands and the guys get out and they're Norwegian, so they're not speaking in English. They're shooting like at the dog slash at like the American uh, researchers and end up like shooting one guy in the leg. And that's when the one character, Gary, pulls out a pistol and takes a shot and kills the gunman. And also he blew up the helicopter on accident. (laughs) (laughs) Not very competent, men. They can't even kill one dog out of a helicopter. One dog, Adina. How hard is it? But so, yeah, so they just have this dog now and they're like, what the fuck was that? Yeah, they're very much like, oh, they went stir crazy. We're in Antarctica. Everybody's having a rough time out here. But they're like, we should go to the Norwegian camp and, like, see what's up. Yes. Right? 
we're introduced at the beginning to the character of McCready. Yeah. Who is uh, like classic rugged Kurt Russell, right? Yes. Big beard, kind of long hair. Ian, this man's hat. <laughs> the hat is absurd. Ian, I want you to make a drawing of him, <laughs> but with like any, like even bigger than it is in the movie. Yes. But like just so ridiculously it's, big. I just couldn't help but think of like a spoof of this movie where just as the scenes continue, the hat keeps growing. <laughs> oh like God. he can't even get in that the helicopter. <laughs> Or just Photoshop bigger hats on him. Yes. <laughs> That's what I want. <laughs> well, he's got like his hood up of his jacket, but then the hat is on top of the hood. It's so ridiculous. Yeah, it's like some kind of like cowboyish hat. Kind of. I don't even know. More like a Australian hat. That's what it looks yeah. like to me. I don't know how to identify hats. I'm not good at <laughs> classifying hats. Uh, it is absurd though. But McCready is kind of this like rough kind of guy. He's constantly drinking... Uh, Bourbon? Whiskey or bourbon? I don't know the brand very well. J&B or something like that. Uh, it begins with him playing a, <laughs> a computer at chess. Yeah. Very randomly. And then immediately just gets angry and destroys it. Yeah, it dumps his drink in I it. don't know what this is supposed to signify to us because generally chess is meant to show in movies that someone's very smart, right? Yeah. And, but he loses. Well, but, but he is a competent character, though, right? He doesn't make dumb choices in the no, movie or anything. No. So what does this reveal about him? I don't know. Uh, also, He's pissy? I guess. Also, I just couldn't help but think, I'm like, why would they lug? That That computer probably weighs like 500 pounds, and, they're, and it only plays chess. That's its sole purpose. <laughs> and they're like, you know what? We have to be careful about how much weight we're carrying up to this research facility, but... That computer is a necessity. Yeah, and then he loses and is like, oh, I'm just going to pour bourbon in this? <laughs> like, save the bourbon, man. I, You're right? stuck in Antarctica. Like, how much of this do you have? Yeah, you got to be sparing with it. <laughs> I don't know why we're ripping on this one scene. It's not... <laughs> I didn't really... It was, an, it was a bad scene. I think it was, too. Just a weird scene to, like, introduce his character. Like, yeah, it shows he's kind of like, I don't know, devil may care or kind of, like, rough in a way, but... You could have shown that in better ways. Totally agree. He's a helicopter pilot, though. In the book, uh, the character is a meteorologist, actually. And formerly a doctor, yes, right? Yes, Very <laughs> weird and interesting backstory. I love that the book describes oh McGreedy as a bronze, a bronze man. man. <laughs> Only Constantly, bronze. he is solid bronze. Solid if you bronze. think he's being just like figurative with his language, no. you'll start to question yourself because he's constantly like <laughs> his bronze face, his bronze beard. His bronze hair. The bronze figure. The bronze hands. And I, <laughs> I don't, maybe it's because there's so many characters in the book he's trying to like just remind you of who he is. Yeah. I don't know. He's been overly bronzed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so uh, in the film, you know, they know that these men came from this Norwegian uh, facility. And so they decide to go check out what happened. Yeah. Because they also determined they've only been there for like a little while. So they're like, it'd be weird for someone to go like cabin crazy already. Yeah. And uh, the whole Norwegian camp has been destroyed. It looks like a fire raged through. It's a wreck. And you know what's really funny is I noticed... At the end of the movie, when their own camp is a wreck, yeah. I was like, wow, it looks like just the same 
as the Norwegian camp. Do you want to know something? And it, wa- it I, was. I, know, I looked it up and I was like, oh, it is. It is, They yes. just reuse the sets. Like, that's so clever. Damn, I was really hoping you didn't know that last little bit. Well, it, it didn't, like, I actually didn't think that it was this the same looking place. But in my mind, I was like, oh, the same fate. It's like they ended up in the same place. Yes. And I didn't. It's like funny how your brain actually makes that connection, right? Yeah, well, I remember like there was uh, an axe just stuck in the wall at the Norwegian facility. And then later in the film, Childs has to take an axe and like chop through a door. Uh, and it's almost like, are, are, is this whole thing just kind of like coming full circle? Are they like living in the same experience Thematically, almost? it works. Oh, it really works. <laughs> yeah, it's like they're almost seeing their own future fate. Yeah, but they do find a mangled, torched corpse there that they decide to bring back with them, right? (laughs) They're like, whoa, what a cool souvenir. They bring it back and everyone's like, what the fuck is this? Because it's very disturbing. It's like all limbs and then there's like two faces that are like pulling away from each other. And like a horrifying expression of like pain, right? Yeah. Very uh, disturbing. And the interesting thing is that this is kind of like the moment essentially when the book begins. Yeah. Because the book begins... With some of the characters being like, we found an alien. (laughs) Yeah, they're like, what is this thing in the middle of our camp that's just dripping and smells awful, right? And they're all gathered around and they're kind of debating what to do with it. And McGreedy ends up telling this whole story about how they find it, right? He's like, oh, yeah, we had this magnetic magnetic disturbance um, in this area that we followed and we found a spaceship in the ice. Yeah. And they're like... So, you know, we're going around it, we're exploring it, we try to open it with explosives and end up accidentally exploding the whole ship. In, in some kind of like weirdly described, it feels like it was like a science fiction-y kind of, I don't know, it was both described in great detail, but then also I was like, I don't quite <laughs> know what happened, what did I read? And as they're trying to like explore the area, one guy kind of brings his uh, ice axe down into the ice and chops into this corpse. Yes. Right? And they dig it up, they bring it back, and it's um, an alien, right? And the book actually really describes what it is. In the movie, all we see is like this mangled half formed something, right? We never know what it originally looked like. Or if it has like an original form. Yeah. And so the book describes it as... The broken half of the bronze ice axe was still buried in the queer skull. Three mad, hate-filled eyes blazed up with a living fire, bright as as fresh-spilled blood, from a face ringed with a writhing, loathsome nest of worms. Blue, mobile worms that crawled where hair should grow. And they speculate, they're like, is this the creature's true form, or is this like a different alien that it was imitating at one point? Yeah. The so, alien's on the ship, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Something else that made me laugh, too, is like what the one guy was talking about how evil its eyes are. And the other guy is like, well, I mean, they look evil to us because we have certain ideas in our head. But like maybe all aliens look like this. To the, <laughs> and he's like, mm, no, it's evil. It's evil. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah. And in the book, Blair is also a scientist. Same kind of role in the movie. And he's like so excited about this. Yeah. He's like, oh, my God, this is amazing. I can't wait to dissect it. We're going to thaw it. It's going to be great. And they have this whole debate where some of them are like, hey, wait. Maybe we shouldn't dethaw this. Like, there could be, like, microorganisms on it. 
that could be let loose on humanity. Yeah. Right? Like ancient diseases. And he kind of keeps arguing like, no, like, like germs can't survive this kind of thing or like animals couldn't survive this long of a. And but at one point later, they're like, well, I guess he's an alien, so who knows? I guess he works <laughs> on different rules. And I'm like, yeah, obviously. <laughs> yeah. I did like that they made this argument that maybe we shouldn't do thought, right? Like, it's not just the idea that maybe it'll come to life, right? There are other concerns yes. in dethawing this, but um, eventually this guy is overruled, the objections are overruled, and they decide to dethaw it. But they're going to have people kind of watch it on guard. Wallet dethaws. Because everyone is understandably very unsettled by <laughs> very it. Very unsettled by the eyes. Also, we should mention up top that in the book, uh, there are way more people at this facility, like yeah. 70 some. Oh, I think like 30 to 40. Or 30. To, OK, OK. Yeah. <laughs> OK, not quite. Not quite 70 some, but a lot. OK. <laughs> yeah. The, I think the movie, there's only like 13 to 15 people. Yeah, yeah, much less, but still quite a roster. Yeah. And the book does include a lot of names, many of which uh, the movie pulls from. So there's still quite a few characters, uh, not 30, but still quite a few. Yeah, it's really interesting, though, that so the book starts with them dethawing it. And McGrady's like, here's the story of how we found it and kind of explains it. Right. Yeah. We don't actually see the action take place. And somewhat similarly, the the movie doesn't show us finding it either. No. But it goes about it in a different way because we have the Norwegians, you know, finding this, digging it out of the ice. And there's a scene later in the film where they go back to the site, they find the spaceship and, and like, where the Norwegians pulled the thing out of the ice. Um, and then they kind of come into the aftermath of whatever happened at this camp. And I guess they did make a movie that's supposed to be the prequel. Yes. With what the Norwegians did. Yeah, I was going to uh, mention this for bonus. But yeah, like in the 2000s, at some point, they made another movie, which I think is also just called The Thing. No. I hate this. <laughs> if it's in the same like canon. You have to name it something different. You have different. to call it something else. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that that one's about like the Norwegian team that found it. And I think like they kind of like examined like, okay, there's this guy in this chair who like slit his own throat. Like how did that guy get there? Like why was this axe in the wall? And they kind of yeah. like try to construct a story around that. Unfortunately, they attempted to do what John Carpenter did with like really wild, like practical special effects to create the monsters. And then... Basically, after they did all the work, the producers were like, oh, no, mm, I think this needs to be more modern. Let's do it all CGI. Ugh. And so they basically had to go back and like paint out all of the work that they put in to do like CGI monsters. That's awful. And I don't think it was like terrible in its execution, but like that impact isn't there that you have yeah. with like physical uh, props and monsters and stuff. Yeah. And people were like, we love the thing for its practical <laughs> That's effects. That's the reason like, we like it. What are you doing? Yeah. I just find it interesting that both versions kind of like, we get kind of an explanation of what happens in an interesting way, I think. Yeah. Well, and I love the, the movie for like, kind of creating a mystery around it, right? Like, yeah. I think it would have been so much more boring if they went out and just stumbled on an alien. Yeah. And they're like, oh, let's bring it back and everything. Instead, it's like the helicopter scene's weird, and then they go to the camp, and they're like, what the fuck happened here? Yeah. Meanwhile, we have the most <laughs> suspicious dog. Oh, my God. The dog acting? The dog acting. <laughs> Give this dog a dog Oscar. I Dog Oscar? <laughs> <laughs> Something about this dog's eyes. 
are so unsettling. Yeah. I don't know what it is. But yeah, this dog is really doing the most with the least. Um, just like ominously sitting under pool tables. Just kind of walking down the hallways, looking in this room, looking in that room. We do see the dog go into someone's room, right? Yeah. So we know someone is infected. Something I read about this, which I'm really glad that I read this, uh, is that Carpenter wanted this to be very uncertain, like who was sitting there because you only see their silhouette, that he got someone to sit there who wasn't one of the characters. Oh, that's smart. To cast the silhouette. So you couldn't like there is no answer. (laughs) You can't be like, oh, actually, I read in a commentary that it was like uh, (laughs) such and such sitting there. No, it was like a random dude. It might have been someone significant, but not a character. Uh, So, yeah. So it's very unclear who this dog encountered and when. That's really cool. I like that. Yeah. Uh, So I just want to talk about some of the characters here. Even though in the book there's like 30-some men, we really only get a handful of people that are important, and I just want to mention them. Obviously, we have McGrady. Blair is the scientist. We have Commander Gary, who is the same in the movie as well. Um, And then we have uh, Dr. Copper, also the same name. We have Kinnear the Cook. And then we have Conant, who is the first person who's going to watch the thing, have yes. like a watch. And I think that's really like the main cast in the book. Yeah. For, yeah. You mentioned the cook, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's pretty much that's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. I mean, the characters are very similar to I've heard, you know, uh, criticisms of the movie where the characters don't exactly have like really different personalities. Uh, and I think that's even more so in the uh, in the book to a degree. Yeah. And harder because you don't actually have like a visual face to put with the person. So you're reading these names over and over. It's and harder to distinguish for sure. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the movie characters a bit, though, because mm-hmm. we have quite the roster. Yes. But something I, I really like that about this movie, though, like that there are just like a lot of people here. Right. Because it feels like, yeah, you'd probably need this many people to operate least. this facility. Yeah. And also, I, I know what I said earlier that like they're not like super different, but I do think that's also a good thing about the movie. Like there's not one guy who's like the super wacky comedic relief guy or the yeah. guy who's flying off at like every little thing or angry or you know what I mean? Like they're all pretty neutral in the, for the most part. Yeah. I mean, I think the movie does its best to distinguish the characters and give them something to remember them by, which is like how I was remembering them as we were taking notes. Yeah. I'm like, Oh, this guy's is, is on skates. This guy is <laughs> operates the radio. Yeah. Like, this guy is balding. You know what I mean? Like little things like that, whether it's physical appearance or um, little bits about their personality. But um, we obviously have uh, McGrady, And then we also have Blair, the scientist. We have Commander Gary, like I said, and Dr. Copper, who are the same as the book. We also have Childs, who um, is kind of like the fly off the handle guy a little bit. Yeah, he's the one who's a little bit like of the loose cannon that has to be like reined in a bit. But even he's like, I don't know, McCready would give him a run for his money in that department as well as a guy who flies off the handle. Uh, then there's Windows, who's like the radio guy with the glasses. There's Clark, who uh, takes care of the dogs. Uh, Knowles is the cook. Norris, I just wrote sweater. Yeah, he doesn't really have much going <laughs> he on. He doesn't have a very, I mean, I knew what happened to him later, but like in the moment, I'm like, I don't know who he is or what he does. So I just wrote sweater. Yeah. There's Fuchs with the glasses. There's Bennings and Palmer. And that's probably it. Yeah. It's a lot of characters. It is a lot of characters. And Yeah, like you were saying, their dynamic is interesting. We do get some scenes of them kind of just hanging out 
existing, yeah. also doing their jobs on the site, right? Um, but yeah, it's important, and we'll mention these characters later as like we as each of them die, basically. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I'd be like, you know, when Norris's famous scene comes up, I was like, what's this guy's name? And then they're like, Norris. And I'm like, okay, good. I feel like they're <laughs> establishing it before it happens. So we get, we, we, we talked about the dog in the film that's just roaming around, the dog that the Norwegians were chasing. And Clark, the guy who takes care of the dogs, is like, why don't I just take you into the kennel and introduce you to all the other dogs in a nice little meet and greet? Yeah. <laughs> this dog way. so suspiciously lies down <laughs> in the kennel with the other dogs. I This alien isn't good at being a dog. No. He's great at being people. When he <laughs> needs to be a person, he's like, I know exactly how to act like them. When he's a dog, he's like... How do I, I will sit here right in the middle of the room and just draw all kinds of attention to myself and be very awkward. Oh my God. This scene with the dog. Terrifying. Is so awful. It's like, it's awful just like in the body horror of it, but then also what happens to the other dogs. I know. I feel so bad for the dogs. Oh my gosh. They didn't ask for this, Ian. No. Um... Yeah, the face opening up in a Demogorgon style. Oh, my which, God. Like, obviously, I'm not saying that, that Stranger Things. <laughs> like, Stranger Things was inspired by this yes. so heavily. The way that it opens kind of like in a flower shape is very cool. Also, like, the dog's skull is there, and then it just kind of, like, falls out, Ugh. which was, like, the most disturbing part when that opens up. All the little, like, tendrils that are, like, rope-like that come out. Yeah. And then the squirting. And the squirting was not... <laughs> <laughs> they were just spraying that dog with fluids. Yeah, I didn't like the spraying. Aww. The liquids was not. Yeah. At one point, just huge monster claws just kind of like shoot upwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do the great, I think what is just a reverse, a reversal of footage where like it looks like the tendrils are wrapping around a dog when they probably had them wrapped up and just pulled them away. Yeah. But like the effect is so good. It is. I mean, as an introduction to what the thing is. This is just such a remarkable moment. I know. And the book describes the thing in a similar way at points where it'll just be like, oh, and then it had like talons and then it was like these kind of components, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, And like the movie just captures that so well. Like at one point there's just like an eyeball just like on it and parts just opening up and other parts just coming out. And you're like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. Where is it going? What is it doing? Which way will it spray next? Does it have a plan (laughs) here? Like, where's this going? Come on. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But all of the commotion of this horrible transformation brings a lot of the guys or at least brings Clark back. And then he gets other guys and Mm -hmm. he's like, "Uh, yeah, we need to like get a (laughs) flamethrower. Yes. And so they come in and they end up torching it uh, with the flamethrower and killing it. Unfortunately, they couldn't save most of the dogs. Yeah. Uh, I think some of them survive because they get killed later. They get killed later, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) The dogs do not make it, unfortunately. No, this is not a good uh, dog movie. No. But after this incident, uh, they decide to watch some video footage that they found at the Norwegian base, and they're like, Oh, they found an alien spaceship. Yeah. And then they actually go and investigate the site and we get a really cool matte painting yeah. of the spaceship in the ice. It's really well done. And I'm, like the integration of like them kind of scaling or rappelling down like the cliffs and everything. Uh, they don't really find out much information yeah. by going to this location. They do see a very uh, 
square uh, cut out yes. in the ice where obviously they um, the Norwegians pulled out the alien. I, I trust that they could have like connected points A and B of like, oh, this is maybe <laughs> probably an alien. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but still, like you said, the matte painting and just the scene in general is very atmospheric. You know what this kind of reminded me of in a lot of ways? Hmm. Alien. Oh, yeah. Like them going in and finding this alien ship. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. And then kind of finding, ending up bringing something back, right? I did read some of the uh, critical reviews of when this movie first came out kind of compared it to Alien, but like in a negative, like, oh, this is like trying to be an alien. Well, and a similar body horror thing, right? Yeah, that's true. Kind of like taking over and exploding your body in various ways. Yeah. Um, It is very different, though, and I think they're really good in, in different ways. But I was just thinking of like that spaceship when they actually got to go inside it in Alien and how cool that yeah, was. Yeah, like the horseshoe one. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a really iconic scene. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to the book here. So they are thawing the alien popsicle that they found, <laughs> and Conant uh, is put in charge of watching it. He had one job, Adina, <laughs> one job. Well, and the book specifically tells us that the, the thing starts twitching, right? Yeah. It starts moving. And then Conant descri- like, describes, like, checking on it, but then, like, not quite remembering what's going on. Yeah. And then next thing we know, Conant is up and about yelling, oh, my God, it escaped. Like, I was supposed to be watching it. I fell asleep. It's gone. Yes. Right? And everyone's like, what the fuck, Conant? Like, you fell asleep. This is unacceptable. Then they hear a commotion in the kennels. And they're like, oh, my God, the dogs. And so they go after it. And they kind of it's interesting because the base camp in the book is described as like a series of buildings, but connected by tunnel passageways. So it feels like more enclosed and more kind of claustrophobic in a way. Like a lot of parts are described as them like rounding these bends in the tunnels to like go to a different building. And they're going to check on the dogs. They round the bend and oh my God, it's the alien. But like, I I kind of don't even remember exactly how it's like described, but it's kind of that process of like it it's digesting a dog and kind of like assimilating into it. But one of the dogs is half digested. And so this thing is part dog, part not. And then because it's attacked, it kind of like turns into something kind of monstrous as well. Still part dog to defend itself. They go at it with fire. They end up uh, electrocuting it as well. Yeah. Which is really cool. Um, But like destroy it. And it's really interesting, though, because at this point, they're like, What's going on? We didn't even think it could come back to life after dethawing, and it, it did, and now it's like assimilating a dog. And so they're kind of like regrouping, trying to figure out what's going on. And basically, they look at the cells and they're like, Okay, it was trying to imitate a dog. And at this point, Blair who was originally so gung-ho <laughs> on dissecting and, like, being into this thing, is now its biggest detractor and is like, yes. oh, my God, it's it's trying to take over the world. It can imitate anything. The only things it can imitate here in Antarctica, because there's no other life here at this station, right, is a human or a dog. Well, don't they talk about cattle at one point? Like milking, like getting oh, milk? Oh, yes, they also have, like, cattle there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, like... And and this is like, I mean, true for the movie too, like a great setup where it's like, 
there's this thing that could easily take over the world, but it's contained yeah. to here for now. Mm-hmm. But how do we make sure it doesn't escape, right? Yeah, yeah. And that being a big, a big factor. Yeah. So, like, one part of what's going on, too, is – and I feel like – because there's not – a actual instance of a thing turning into a person confirmed, right? No, they don't see it. Until, like, way later, right? Yeah. So they kind of are speculating a lot, right? Like, they think it might have turned into a person, right? And then they're like, well, even if you're biologically a person the same as me, like, you don't have the experiences, like, the... The way of speaking, you know, there's kind of a lot of learned traits that we'd be able to identify. So they they quickly come to the conclusion that this thing must be telepathic. Yeah. If it is a person, then it must be telepathic. It must be reading our minds to know how to, like, imitate us better. Yeah. And they also speculate that maybe it was, like, psychically influencing Blair. Yeah. And that's why he was so like, oh, we have to thaw this thing out. Like, let's get going. Like, mm-hmm. I want to, let's get this thing out of the ice. Well, and a number of them describe having dreams. The dreams, about yes. About it, of it coming to life and it kind of like tormenting them in their dreams. Um, So yeah, the telepathic powers of this thing are very vague, right? It's not yeah. fully explained exactly what it can do, just that it can do stuff. Um, There's also an interesting theory that Blair proposes that Basically, this thing, when it gets something, it digests it. And after it digests it and becomes it, it has, it like assumes the mass of whatever it digested. And then it uses its leftover mass or weight to go and assimilate something else. So, like, every time it has leftover weight to go and like, become something else. Yeah, kind of like split like a cell yeah. or something. It's yeah. kind of like the blob. Like it just keeps absorbing and growing. Mm-hmm. And except instead of growing, it kind of keeps like splitting Spreading. off and creating new But they're versions. separate organisms. Yes. And they even talk later about like, we don't think they're connected anymore. Like they're kind of independent. Mm-hmm. And whether they could like identify each other is like unknown. But yeah, I think it's interesting because the book really gets into a lot of speculation over like how the alien or how the thing functions. Mm -hmm. Questions that like you could have in the movie. I think the movie works without addressing that for the most part. Like, oh, how would it have the memories or the personalities of the people that it's like transformed into, right? But I don't think you really need like, oh, maybe it's biological. Who knows, right? Yeah. Uh, But in the book, like, once they have the telepathy theory, they're like, okay, we can't trick it now. Like, it will read our minds and know if we're trying to, like, fuck with it. So, like, how do we work around this, right? Yeah, how can we figure out who's who? It gets really into the details about, like, speculating on how it works and how they can fight it, basically. Mm Mm-hmm. In both versions, Blair goes nuts here. <laughs> Absolutely crazy. He uh, like destroys any vehicle because he's like, it's gonna it's gonna take over the world if it escapes. Like we can't let it get out of here. Yeah. And he just goes on a rampage in the camp in both versions, like you said. And they just have to like lock him up. <laughs> and I like this idea too, where like, okay, we have the thing to deal with. Also, we have a madman <laughs> that we just have to be aware of and be careful of, right? Yeah. It It makes makes people crazy. It kind of makes me think, once again, of Alien, where it's like there's the xenomorph, and then, oh, also there's robots. No, not the robot, too. (laughs) (laughs) It's just kind of like a separate thing that you have to be worried about. Yeah. Well, and that feeling of, like, not being able to trust people, right? Not just, I can't trust them that they're not 
an alien, but I also can't trust that they're not going to crack up and like try to yes, kill me, right? Absolutely. And the paranoia getting to people. I genuinely don't think this is in any way like ripping off alien. No. So not to, I don't want to like by comparing it make that uh, idea. Uh, let's go back to the movie and let's find out the fate of our friend Bennings. Uh, poor Bennings. Uh, he is left alone with the thawing body that they brought back from the camp. So this is interesting and similar to the book, right? Like, yeah, they think it's dead and it's not. And it gets Bennings. Windows comes back into the room just long enough to see him like being absorbed. Yeah. In a very horrifying image. <laughs> But luckily he witnesses that, so he's able to run and warn other people. This scene is so iconic where they catch Bennings or what was Bennings, like, fleeing outside. And they, like, circle around him. Yeah. And that slow turn and his hand isn't formed yet. And he just, like, like, oh, it's so good. It's just, like, and the the lighting of the flares and, like, just the way they're blocked in that circle. Mm Mm-hmm. And then they burn him. They torch yeah, him. They torch him. <laughs> Poor Bennings. Poor Bennings. R.I.P. He never had a chance. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, what a great introduction to like the idea that it can copy people too, mm-hmm. like effectively. Yeah. And like you said, we never really see this in the book. Like we'd never see like a mid-transformation person. No. And, and the book just kind of is like, we are trusting that it could turn into a person and we wouldn't know. Yeah. Like, there's no proof of that. Whereas in the movie, there's like, this is the proof. If we hadn't caught him as soon yeah. as we did, like, who knows? Who we probably knows wouldn't have happened. known who yeah. he was. Yeah, exactly. Because they thought that they killed the dog one, right? Yeah. And they, I mean, maybe they would have noticed that the uh, corpse is missing. I don't know. Yeah. Food for thought. <laughs> <laughs> um. Okay, here is where we get into a little bit of something that we don't understand. Uh, So in the book and in the movie, they're like, okay, Dr. Copper's like, we have to figure out who is a thing and who isn't. And there's a blood serum test that we can do. And this is basically how I understand it, Ian. It's described in the book, and I've read it several times, and I still don't understand it. I'm just glad that you also didn't understand (laughs) it, because I was rereading it, and I'm like, I don't. No, if I'm understanding this. They're, they take human blood. So in the book, Dr. Copper takes blood from himself and Commander Carey. Or Gary. Commander Gary. Gary. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they are injecting it into a dog. More dog. Problematic torture. <laughs> and this goes on for like a few days. Like they have to do it, I think, multiple times. And then it, the end result is when they draw the blood from the dog... It will be immune to human blood. So when they test it with something from like a contaminant from the thing or from someone who's suspected to be a thing, it will sh- show some kind of reaction. Yeah. They describe like particulates in yeah. the serum. Yes. And so they run this test with this dog this human dog blood hybrid that they've created. Mm-hmm. Which and- takes like five days. Yes. Yeah. And they test it on is it Conning's? Conant. Con- Conant, thank you. Now I'm getting the names mixed up. They <laughs> tested on Conant, who was the guy who was left alone with the alien, who they yeah. were like, mm, It's probably him. It's probably him. <laughs> and the results are negative, that he's not a thing. And they're like, oh, great. Like, Everybody's so excited. Yeah, like, run outside, tell everyone. And then Dr. Copper is like, oh, my God. And I, I, I still don't quite understand how he, like, f- realized this. This was the part also I didn't quite get. But he realizes that 
the dog blood was contaminated with thing DNA or whatever because either him or Gary who contributed the human blood yes were already taken over Mm -hmm. and so the test on Conant was null and void and also either Copper or Gary is now a thing yeah yeah so we have three main suspects here in the book we have Conant who was left alone with a thing for a long time and then we have the two blood samples right who have potentially contaminated this test and at this point they realize that like all the other dogs are dead so they can't do more blood tests they can't do this serum thing anymore basically so yeah it's very confusing but the thing is like if you're the doctor right and i'm like "Uh uh-oh either me or you are a thing and if he knows it's not him then it's it's gary yeah. Like, wouldn't you just kill him? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he would think that people would think he was a thing if he killed him. But wouldn't you know after killing it, like, wouldn't it transform? Like, I don't wouldn't, know. like, the evidence be after you killed it? Yeah. Because the thing is, so we get <laughs> the, the thing the is, thing. Uh, in the film, we're introduced to this idea of the blood test. The confusing blood test that we don't understand. And they're like, oh, no, someone's drained all the blood. We have no blood left to work with. Oh, no. And I'm like, this was probably a workaround. Yeah, they're probably like, we cannot explain this to audiences in a way that they will understand. And I was like, thank you. Thank you. Uh, But who sabotaged the blood? And in a similar situation, uh, Gary has the key and he only ever gives it to Dr. Copper when he needs access to the fridge. And so one of them... Destroyed the blood. Yeah. But there is the possibility that That someone someone lifted it off of Gary. He's like, I don't think, but someone could have. So, like, you wouldn't kill one of them in that situation. Yeah. But it seems like in the book situation, it's like, it's definitely one of you, right? Yeah. Like, it's in the blood. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I guess they just don't want to start killing indiscriminately. The proof is in the blood pudding, Adina. (laughs) The blood pudding. (laughs) That took me a few seconds to come up with that one. Uh, Yeah, so, I mean, it's it's funny that they both come to the same conclusion of, like, one of them is probably the thing. Yeah. Because Commander Gary is implicated in both versions, McGreedy kind of takes charge here. Yeah. um, Because nobody really trusts him anymore. Uh, and so now uh, McCready's in charge and he's going to try to figure out what to do. I like how in the book they're really like, what do we do now? Like, <laughs> yeah. what do we even do? Right. They're like so kind of thrown because they were waiting for so long for this blood test. I mean, at this point, it's been days, almost like a full week. Right. And like kind of the. The paranoia is just building, right? Yes. It's it's kind of similar in the movie as well, just not really knowing what to do. Yeah, it feels like the book has more of a lull here, and not in a bad way, but where they're just kind of like, I guess we just keep living yeah. and just look at each other like all the time, and like <laughs> nobody ever has privacy. Well, they're like, don't, yeah, don't let anybody be alone. Like everybody's kind of hanging out in groups. and But you can't even trust, like, Two people to be alone. I know. Because what if one of them's a thing and they get the other guy? Yeah. It's like you almost just all have to be in one group at all. Yeah. At all times. <laughs> uh, we get a scene in the movie here that's very interesting. And I don't know if you read this for certain or if it was just speculation that there was a deleted scene involved with this. Yeah. Where the character of Fuchs is outside 
and he comes across the tattered remains of a jacket that says McCready on it. And this was established earlier because they found other clothing with holes in it where they think when someone gets taken over by the thing that like it tears up the clothing. So he finds this and he's like, oh, shit, like is McCready got taken, right? Yeah. Then it like jumps to McCready's point of view with him and a couple other people. And they come across the burnt remains of Fuchs. Yeah. Where he had found the remains of the jacket. Yes. And it's like, what the fuck happened? Mm-hmm. But in some ways, I think this like weirdness and like the confusion about it, like actually really works. Because, like, it's just kind of like, what's happening? Yeah, people are just dying left Even and right. Even as the audience, you're like, wait, he found that, but then he's dead. But someone torched the body. Like, was it a person who did that or just the thing? Were they trying to destroy evidence? Like, what's happening? Yes. And it's one of those things that just kind of, like, never gets answered. Mm-hmm. But, like, that's what's effective about the movie with, like, the paranoia and the 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 questions and the unknown, right? Yeah, I agree. I think it it's, adds to the, the atmosphere here of, like, people just kind of, like... You lose them. Yes. And then you're like, what happened to them? Yeah. What happens with Nalls later? You're like, oh, wait, where did he go? Okay, I guess he's, go- I guess he's dead, <laughs> he's right? He's taken, like- right? <laughs> yeah, like, it's just, and the, the circumstances of Fuchs's body being burned after he found the tattered remains of the jacket are just, like, bizarre. Yeah. But kind of cool and work really well, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so the shirt comes back. As a thing, uh, McReady isn't charged very long before people suspect him, right? He and Nalls kind of go out and investigate his shack because there's a light on. And then Nalls finds the tattered shirt and is like, oh, shit, McReady is a thing. He comes back, tells the others, and then they're all ready to turn on McReady. The, the light in the cabin we never got an answer for either, right? No. Okay, there there must have been some deleted aspect to there this. There had to be. Because yeah. the, 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 the shirt thing I get, even if that was planned, but like the light has no answer, I guess. But so McCready comes back. I guess it could have been Blair, right? Maybe. Because he probably could have been escaping. Because he's been like loose this whole time. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so they're all ready to, like, kill McCready as soon as he shows up. <laughs> but I love he sneaks back in through, like, the storage uh, room and gets his hand on a blowtorch and dynamite before Childs can break into the storage room after him. And so now McCready has the upper hand by threatening to blow everyone up. <laughs> and it's great. This is, like... This is Kurt Russell's best look, I think. Like the frostbitten. The, the frosty beard, <laughs> the crazed look in the eye, him holding both the dynamite. Blow the blowtorch. The blowtorch and dynamite. <laughs> like, it's a good look. <laughs> I know. I agree. I love this for him. I love him aggressively defending his honor, right? <laughs> He's like, I'm not an alien. <laughs> How dare you? Uh, but yeah, he takes the rest of the group hostage with this dynamite. And um, this is when, you know, the standoff is is reaching its height. Uh, someone inconveniently has a heart attack. And, oh, it's Sweater Guy. <laughs> it's Sweater Guy. Good old Norris, the Sweater Guy. <laughs> Another detail I find interesting is there's one moment we see of him looking out a window when he seems to be by himself and he kind of like, oh. Grabs like, his chest. Kind of grabs his chest. I mean, it's probably just to add to the fake out later, but I'm like. Is he putting on a show (laughs) or like, is he actually experiencing something going wrong? Like, it's kind of interesting to speculate on. Yeah. And and this is uh, he has a heart attack and poor Dr. Copper Uh, is trying to resuscitate him when 
Here comes the bite. Here comes <laughs> the stomach mouth. The chomp. The ch- the big chomp. The big chomp. Uh I mean yeah, this this uh this scare is probably one of the most iconic in the whole movie. Uh Dr. Copper gets both arms like ripped off. This effect is so good and yet there's a sound effect mixed into this <laughs> when his arms pull away. That sounds like a Nickelodeon, like, bloop, like, <laughs> I miss that. Of, like, a weird cartoonish sound effect mixed in oh with it. Oh my gosh, I totally miss that. Yeah, so the doc is killed. Yeah, I just love that his, like, chest turns into a mouth. Like, yeah. it's so unsettling. I actually read that they did this with someone who uh, had lost their arms. A double amputee. Yeah. And they actually just, for one of the wide shots, when you see his arms and his face contorted like in pain and he's kind of like turning away, that's just a rubber mask they put on. Oh, wow. The double amputee. But you're so, it's a wide shot to begin with and you're looking at his stump arms that yeah. like you don't even like notice like, oh, he's that's a man in a rubber mask. <laughs> that's really crazy. And yeah, this scene was like, I forgot that this happened. <laughs> you gasped. <laughs> and I was like, oh, it like seriously scared me so much, even though I've already seen this movie. But I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> uh, I, and this is also one of the most iconic moments in the movie. This weird part of Norris's body shoots up and kind of like clings to the ceiling and it looks like a spider with his face on. Uh, McCready comes in with the blowtorch and starts lighting it on fire. As he's on fire, like, the head and the tongue is, like, lolling out, and it just slowly pulls away. Melts away. From the body. One one fact I wanted to look up that I think I've read before, and maybe a listener can uh, confirm or deny this. I think they set up this effect at one point, because they're burning, like, a whole body. Uh, I think they fucked it up and, like, ruined it. <gasps> really? And the special effects artist had to, like, remake the whole body. Oh, like, oh my gosh. Like, to redo the scene. I think, anyway. But, like, there's, like, the special effects stuff in this movie is legendary. And the, uh, the head of it was a man named Rob Botton, who was only 22 years old, Adina. Oh, my God. And he was put in charge of the whole show. <laughs> wow. There was another really famous um, special effects artist who was also involved, and he helped out with, like, some of the, like, I think the the dog scene in particular. But Rob Botton was, like, the guy. And, like, he was under so many constraints and, like, time constraints. And, like, apparently when the movie was done filming, he had to be put in the hospital for, like, exhaustion and <laughs> oh pneumonia. Oh, my God. <laughs> So, like, it really took a toll on him. Wow. Uh, But, I mean, like, these uh, effects are still, like, legendary and just so well done. Like, this head separation. Oh, my God. This is one of the best uh, fake heads I've ever seen in a movie. It's really good. Like, when it's on the ground and, like, the, the tendril shoots out and it starts, like, pulling itself and, like, the jaw is still working Oh my god, it's just unbelievable. Something about the head being upside down while it's moving. I know. Just like it's perfect, right? Oh, it's, it's the so best smart. touch. It's the best little yeah. touch. That it doesn't even have like the idea to like flip the head right side up. Like it doesn't care. It doesn't need it. Like just sprout some legs and crawl the fuck away, right? Yeah. Like the- I love when they turn around. <laughs> They're like <laughs> And it's just there. Like, it's so comical. It is. There's a handful of scenes that are, like, really comedic. Yeah. I also think of the scene when, at one point, McCready goes to check on Blair. 
because they've locked him in a shack. Oh, yeah. And they're talking. And at one point, the shot angle changes. And you just see that there's a noose hanging there. <laughs> and Blair is like, listen, I'm sorry. I flew off the handle. I'm fine now. Like, I just let me out. Like, I'm OK. <laughs> and the whole conversation, this noose is just hanging there. <laughs> it's so dark, but it's so funny. It is really funny. <laughs> <laughs> but uh i mean yeah the effects of like the body melting in the head and like then they torch the spider head right like yeah. all top notch really great amazing unfortunately norris and the doctor won't be our only fatalities here because clark also doesn't make it yeah he lunges at mccready and mccready shoots him just point blank yep he's dead um and around this time in the book like we said Going back to that for a second, like everyone's feeling really crazy and the cook is being really crazy. Kinnear. Um, In fact, he's so freaked out by the fact that um, any of them could be the thing. He just starts ranting and raving in the kitchen and like screaming and like singing and like quoting Bible verses. Like singing hymns and psalms. And and it's driving everyone so crazy. And they're like, I know, let's put on some movies to distract (laughs) people. They literally put on... Uh, a film they have like a projector and everything and then while they're watching a movie someone sneaks off and kills the cook yeah because they find that like i don't know if they just gave the cook a knife and he just naturally did what he wanted to with it or if like they actually murdered him uh but yeah uh mccready's like hey he stopped singing and everyone's (laughs) like finally and he goes and checks he's like oh nope he's dead he's dead they're like okay so now we actually have a murderer here yes like along with everything else that's yeah that's what's so good about this story though is like there's there's a monster but there's also a person who's crazy and then just maybe a murderer right like there's so many elements at play they do however uh electrocute the body just to be safe and when they do they find out that it's a thing yeah yeah and so they're like oh wait just kidding no one's a murderer anymore. Oh, good guy. <laughs> you got off on a technicality. Yeah. <laughs> well done. Well, and I love too later when they're talking about the thing impersonating people. They were like, he impersonated Kinner having a mental breakdown. Yeah, and singing the Psalms. Yeah. Like, not only did he impersonate him well, but like having a breakdown. <laughs> like, this thing is like so Getting in our heads. smart and intuitive and like so dangerous, right? Mm hmm. Yeah, really, really crazy. Um, Luckily, in both the book and the movie at this time, uh, McGrady figures out that we can do a different blood test, a much simpler and easier to understand blood test. (laughs) Yes. He uh, speculates that, like, you know, even the blood of a thing is like its own entity when it's separate from his body. So if we take a blood sample from someone and then say, stick a hot needle in the blood the blood will try to escape or defend itself it will turn into its own organism Mm -hmm. so he's like we're all gonna do a new blood test (laughs) and everyone's gonna listen to me because i have the blowtorch and i have the dynamite yes let's talk about the book blood test first because it goes pretty quickly right they uh each do the blood tests on everybody that they suspect first which is smart, right? Yes. The people that they think are actually the things um, they do first. And they find out that Conant 
and Commander Gary are both things. I love this part because Conant, like, and as soon as they go to test the blood, Conant just like, and like attacks them and they have to like kill him immediately. Mm-hmm. And Gary's like, oh my God, Conant was a thing. Like I've known him for so long, like, and I couldn't even tell. And then they're like, okay, Gary, let's check you. And then he's like, <laughs> and then he like, transforms also. <laughs> I, I just, know, he's putting on a performance. I know, I just love the idea that he's still, like, playing it up. And he's like, what? <laughs> Conant? No. <laughs> uh, McCready and uh, Dr. Copper are safe in this, uh, in the book. And actually, the book tells us that 14 men were the things. Yeah. yeah. Like, a, when I read that, I don't think I quite under, because I had forgotten there were so many people at this camp that I was like, what does it mean, 14? Yeah. So I guess they just kept testing and then they would just keep changing and then they would just like blowtorch them. <laughs> You'd think at a point like they would look like all the things would be like, go now, go now. Let's go. <laughs> Instead of just one by one, they're like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but like out of 30 something, I mean, that's almost half, right? It was yeah. it was working its way through them. It was, which is like really interesting to to kind of see the results of that. Yeah. Let's talk about the movie blood test scene, though. Yes. It begins with McCready testing Windows and finding out that he's safe. Mm -hmm. And then he's like, "Okay, Windows, you take the blowtorch and I'm going to test myself next and prove what I've always known. He's like so pissed about (laughs) it. He's still so angry. My honor. My honor. (laughs) (laughs) And he's apparently not. But I like at this point, it's still just a theory, right? Until they found a thing like this is still just theoretically this should work. Mm hmm. And they test the the corpses of um, yes. Dr. Copper and uh, Clark, the dog handler, which Clark, who had attacked McCready with a knife, was a human. Yeah. And I like Childs is like, hey, you're a murderer now. Mm-hmm. And I like that moral gray zone, right? That McCready just shot a man down. Yeah. You know, I mean, he did attack him. He right? was in self-defense. Yeah, yeah. But he, you know, he killed a human. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, And poor Clark, who just liked the animals and. Ugh. All the dogs died, and he was really upset because Blair killed them all. <laughs> I know. It was very upsetting. It's very sad. Yeah. Then I love the way this plays it off, because then he's about to test Palmer's blood. And I think he's still kind of, like, going back and forth with Childs. Yeah. And he's like, oh, like, I can't wait to get to yours and, like, see what's really going on with you, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and he's, like, not even paying attention and that's why it works so well, because you're not paying attention either to him testing Palmer's blood. So when that, like, hand mm-hmm. comes out of the test dish, it's so scary. Oh, my God. It's so freaky. <laughs> and then Palmer just starts, like, vibrating. <laughs> oh, my God. This is so silly because he literally tied all three of them, like, <laughs> to each other. And then we were talking about like the humor of this yes. movie at points. This scene is like really funny. And then poor uh, Gary and Childs, who are like trying to get away from Palmer, who is like vibrating into and a like thing. his head is melting, and yeah. they're just like Antias, Antias, and like the bench is like flying up and down. I gotta say, Windows is less than useless here. Oh my god! Like just so useless. <laughs> Can't do anything. Has a blowtorch, does nothing. McGreedy's like, oh god, uh, the blow 
blowtorch is not blowtorching. <laughs> He's choking as well. As long as it, yeah, it goes on for so long where they just can't do anything. Where they're like, oh no, both of our blowtorches won't work. And I'm like, do you have guns? Can do you, you do anything? anything? Like, <laughs> and Windows doesn't even know to get out of the fucking way. Yeah, Windows and, gets eaten. And of course, yeah, the the thing chomps down on his head. I love at this point. It's like the effect is violent enough that like you're kind of convinced by it but also it's very silly where like the body of windows that you're watching getting flung around is like so clearly just like a rag doll man (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah windows uh is killed and then mccready finally gets the blowtorch working Mm -hmm. or i think maybe he takes windows blowtorch and uh torches torches the thing yeah So both Palmer and Windows are gone, right? And they finally untie Commander Gary and uh, Childs, which Commander Gary's saying, because they they test their blood and they're they're human. And then, yeah, and then they untie them from the chair. But like before Gary gets untied, he says something like, I'd like to not spend my last days on this earth tied to this fucking couch. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he's right to be angry. They should have isolated them in their own chairs, pointed the blowtorch at them, tested their blood, then turned to the next one in their (laughs) other chair. But would you have thought, I don't know, like, I think it's funny because I don't think I would have thought of that either. I'd be like, tie them all to the couch. And then you're like, oh, no. (laughs) Just them being tied next to him. I know. Oh, my God. It's so bad. (laughs) So they've killed the remaining things among them, right? So all of them are human. The only question left is Blair. Yes. Who I love in the book. Someone is like, oh, should we go test Blair? And they're like, oh, my God, we forgot about Blair. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I think McCready is like, oh, my God. We just left him for like a week, right? Uh, Which, like, the, the span of time that's passed in the book is more clear, I think. Yeah. Like, they've just spent some time not able to do anything, right? I think the movie's a little more unclear as to, like, how much time has passed. Yeah, I agree. Which we get to at this point. Mm Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the book here yeah. and what happens. So they go to test Blair, um, and Blair is a, th- a thing already. It looks like an alien, yeah. actually, um, and they're able to kill it. He's, like, in his lab, and they they break the door down. They're able to kill it, and then they find, like, all of these scientific experiments that Blair has just been doing on his own yeah. or the thing has been doing on its own in the lab. There is, like, an atomic fusion <laughs> engine that is, like, creating warmth and generating, like, electricity. There is, like, an anti-gravity belt pack. Uh, it's really wacky. Yeah, it's super advanced. Uh, it was apparently uh, enacting its escape plan, right? Yes. Trying to get out of there. And, in fact, before they confront Blair, they see a bird fly by yeah like one of those big seabirds and they shoot at it because they're trying to get it away because they're like if the thing gets to be a bird the world is fucked yeah it'll just get away and we're, we're done for so they yeah. shoot the bird i forget if the bird flies off or it if they, does fly off okay so i like that that's even still ambiguous yeah like they're pretty certain they're like this thing was inventing like a jetpack to fucking escape <laughs> yeah like i don't think he could turn into a bird or was caring about trying to do that. Yeah. So they're like, we're pretty sure that bird wasn't a thing. But But we don't know. So maybe we'll just assume it wasn't. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I mean, they, they kill Blair and they find like 
all this equipment and they're able to hopefully stop it, right? And they're all human. And this is kind of how the book ends. Yeah, it's kind of a weird ending because they're just looking at all this advanced technology and they're like, oh my God, this this thing was so smart. Like, it's so intelligent. What kind of world did it come from? Yeah. Okay, oh, bye. Well. <laughs> <laughs> like they're just speculating on it and they're like... Well, that's the end. <laughs> I guess we'll never know. Yeah. Although I guess someone just has an anti-gravity belt now, like if they just want to yeah, use Yeah, do they that. keep that? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, let's go to the Blair scene in the film, though. They go to check on Blair, discover he's not in his hut, mm-hmm. and in fact has like tunneled under the hut. It like took out floorboards and... Uh, went underground and was building a spaceship. A mini spaceship. A mini spaceship. (laughs) This was a little too much for me in the film. Yeah. I mean, not as much as like atomic fusion and anti-gravity belts, (laughs) but still a little bit like silly. I think especially because like I was saying, it's unclear how much time has passed. They, they make a comment like, oh, we've left Blair alone by himself for all this time, right? How much time? How much? Yeah. Weeks? He's building a spaceship. Yeah. Also, like, can he build a spaceship with just what's around? <laughs> like, that's the thing. It's like, and the same with the book, right? Like, I don't doubt the intelligence of this creature, but there is a thing as, like, resources. Yeah. Like, what resources do you have? Mm-hmm. No matter how smart you are, you can't just build, like, an atomic fusion reactor out of, like... A Coke bottle and... Well, all like also, like, just because your civilization is capable of that, does that mean that the ordinary layperson in that civilization <laughs> can do that? Right? Like, our civilization has created amazing discoveries. Yeah. If I was stranded somewhere, I couldn't build shit, right? I don't know how to do anything, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, just because you come... From an advanced civilization doesn't mean that you know how to do it. Yeah, I can't even, like, fix the leaky spigot outside of our house, right? (laughs) Like, I'm not going to be able to build whatever the most advanced technology. I mean, maybe it wasn't, like, a scientific thing. Yeah. Or maybe, like, all their species, like, shared knowledge or something. I don't know. Interesting, yeah. Um, Even so, like, I still don't buy that you can just build anything you want if you're just <laughs> smart enough, right? Yeah, they do uh, explode it. They destroy the escape plan. And as they're kind of trying to track down Blair again, they realize that the generator has been destroyed. Yes. So they're going to run out of power. And this is a death sentence for them. And I like that they kind of acknowledge this in the movie. Yeah, they're like, this is a suicide mission now, right? Yeah. Here's the thing, though. They were like, its plan is to freeze itself. It can survive, as we know, being frozen, and it will wait until a rescue team comes, and then it can unthaw and then, like, take over, right? Yeah. So they're like, so let's heat things up. Isn't that, like, kind of the line? And they're like, let's blow this place up. (laughs) And I'm like, is, do they just want to blow up the thing, or do they want to blow up the compound? I'm kind of unclear on, like, what their plan is exactly here. Yeah, I agree. It's not clear. I think they just want to blow everything up. They're upset. And just, <laughs> they're, just, they're just doing the only thing that they can think of at this point. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so they have this plan. They're going to, like, um, put uh, charges in, like, the generator room or, like, basement of the facility. Blow it all sky high. Adina, they have done such a good job of being so careful and then for some reason at this point, they're like, let's just all split up. Yeah. I'm 
like, why are you doing this? They know Blair is out there. Or yeah. Not Blair, but a thing. <laughs> and they're like, uh, Gary, go around that corner out of sight and like put those charges. And of course, Gary runs into uh, Blair, who like sticks his hand like in under his face. Yeah, he a, like suction faces him. Really? Not I, good. I thought it worked. It was a cool effect. Yeah, I say not good, not like <laughs> no, it's a I bad know. effect, like, oh, upsetting. Yes. <laughs> I mean, kind of seeing how he can kind of like fuse into another creature, right? Yeah. And then uh, Nulls is like, huh, huh, what's going on over there? <laughs> Let me just go walk out of sight real quick. And then we never see him again. And then, of course, McCready is like, hey, where is everyone? Uh-oh, I'm by myself. Yeah, Childs, like, ran out earlier. And yeah. you're like, what? why is nobody cooperating? No one is staying in their <laughs> spot, right? Like, yeah. everyone just stay in a unit. Yeah. Uh, of course, this is like when the thing kind of like immer- I, I love it's like under the floor yeah and like kind of rushes at McCready and knocks him away but he manages to light dynamite says well fuck you too in a great <laughs> like a really good <laughs> it's such a great line because it's like it's almost like he was trying to think of something more clever to say and just resorted to it. he's like <laughs> yeah well just whatever fuck, fuck off <laughs> <laughs> and manages to blow the whole facility up right mm-hmm and then we get him kind of like wandering around the wreckage and who shows up but Childs. Yeah. He's like, where were you? Oh, he thought he saw Blair and he chased after him mm-hmm. and kind of got lost in the storm and came back. And of course, they're like, mm. are you a thing? Are you a thing? Are you a thing? Are you a thing? Are you? <laughs> but like, they're so chill about it. Like, McCready's just so tired. He yeah. says something like, if either of us had a surprise for the other, we were too tired to do much about it. Mm-hmm. And there's kind of this, I, I just love the tension of this scene. I mean, they're both kind of like, I hate to use this word, but like the alpha males of the group <laughs> in a way. And they're both just kind of like sizing each other up here yeah. and trying to like determine like what's going on. And McCready just says, let's just wait a while. And then that the movie just ends. They share some some whiskey. Yeah, they pass some whiskey. Yeah. A lot of the speculation of this movie relates to this scene because everyone wants to know who's a thing. And John Carpenter has actually spoken on this. And there is one very big giveaway that I did notice. Um, and that is you can very clearly see McCready's breath in the cold when he's breathing. And you can't really see child's breath at all. Mm. And it's very accentuated. Like McCready's like backlit. So every breath he takes is like this really like cartoon speech bubble, like puff of smoke. <laughs> yeah. And McCready and, and child's like you can't see anything. Mm. So like that is a very noticeable contrast. I don't like giving this an answer. Yeah, I don't think it's meant to. Also, I think it's worth noting. I was reading that there were multiple endings. Okay. That were made for this movie because uh, test audiences did not react well to this film, Ian. Yeah. They kind of knew that uh, <laughs> it was kind of a lot for people to yeah. take in. Um, there was one ending where McCready like escapes okay. and like I think is free. There's another ending where McCready is the, is the thing. Mm. Um, so I think like a lot was on the table, right? Yeah. And so the end result I think falls very perfectly in like, well, who knows? And I love that. Like, I get so frustrated when people try to, like, answer these questions. And also, I don't like directors answering them either, right? Like, 
it makes me think of the end of Inception and everyone's like, Christopher Nolan, tell us, was he in a dream the whole time or wasn't he? And like, the point is you're not supposed to know. That is the point. I made it that way on purpose. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't just cut the movie too early at the end and like leave it. Like I didn't film a whole scene I forgot to include. Oops, I forgot. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, what about that one scene? Oh, well. It's one thing where like, if someone was planning for a sequel and then the sequel didn't get made and they're like, okay, I'll just tell you, right? Yeah. Um, that happened with the Midnight Club, right? Yes. Where there was, there was supposed to be another season and it didn't happen. So Mike Flanagan was like, okay, here's the answer to these questions. Yeah, the, right? these were just my plans. No, someone made this <laughs> and they made it so it would be like this. So, and, and it's okay to have fan theories and to be like, this is my yeah. theory, right? But we also can live with uncertainty, right? We We are allowed to live with that. Ambiguous, yeah, ambiguous ending. I just don't like the idea that like there is an answer and like it's there if you look close enough and if you don't get it like you're wrong, mm-hmm. right? I find that frustrating kind of like oftentimes missing the whole point. I don't know how intentional the breath thing was. Like the quote I read read from John Carpenter made it sound like he did it intentionally. Um and it does feel very like kind of accentuated obvious, and yeah. obvious. But also, it could have been an accident. Maybe just the way they lit it made it real obvious when <laughs> McCready br- was breathing and when yeah. uh, Childs wasn't mm-hmm. or when he was or not. So, uh, but I, I just I really do like how kind of like it's this quiet standoff at the end and yeah. so ambiguous about like what even what not, are they going to do? Are they even going to attack each other? Are they just going to let themselves freeze to death? Yeah. Like, yeah. It's not even like, oh, who's a thing and who is it? It's just kind of like an interesting like, I mean, they could both be human, just not trusting each other anymore. Yeah. You yeah. know? Uh, and yeah. does it matter? Like, they're going to die anyway. That's Well, if one of them's a thing. They don't want it to freeze. Yeah. Yeah. So there's still, like, a stake kind of involved. Yeah. But, um, yeah, well, that's that's the end of both versions. Yes. I do want to take a moment and talk about the author of the book a little bit. Ooh, yes. Because, I mean, this book book or this novella right was published in 1938 that's fucking crazy yeah i mean this guy uh john w campbell was like a pioneer in science fiction yeah and he wrote like a ton of uh short stories i think maybe a few novels as well and ended up becoming like the editor of a really famous science fiction magazine okay um and ended up kind of like promoting the careers of a lot of really well-known science fiction writers like Asimov. Yeah, I mean, I know, like, a lot of science fiction writers begin with, like, publishing short stories and, like, you know, uh, publications and magazines and things like that, so. Yeah, yeah, and so, I mean, he was hugely influential, not just with his own writing, but kind of shaping the science fiction genre by being this editor, right? And, like, he was heavily involved in the stories that were submitted and, like, was very picky about what he allowed into the magazine and kind of, like, shaped a lot of young writers. Um, And also was probably one of the worst people to ever exist. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) From what I read on him, he probably had, like, every horrific view that you could ever have about race. So... Allegedly, he set had met, has made several comments, and some people say, "Oh, he just liked to play devil's advocate, and he just liked <sighs> to like have debates with people, and he would just try to to bait people." But then other people were like, "No, he brought this stuff up a lot, <laughs> and like he was serious." Uh. Um, made comments to the effect that like 
oh, we shouldn't have had a civil war because slavery would have, like, naturally ended because of industrialization. Oh, my God. Also, some people like slavery, Mm. and they just want to go back to it and are naturally suited for slavery. Yeah. And actually negatively affected the career of Samuel R. Delaney, who is a very groundbreaking black science fiction author. Oh, okay. And uh, told him specifically when he submitted to the magazine that uh, readers would not be able to relate to a black main character and refuse to publish him in the magazine. Oh, my God. So, and like, just was the worst person, right? Like, an absolute bigot, an absolute racist, like horrible, and also like had all these like pseudoscience beliefs too. Huh. Like had all basically like a conspiracy theorist. Yeah. Um. He he to the end was like smoking is not causing cancer, and like smoked all the time. Right. <laughs> I eat ten cigarettes a day and I'm fine. <laughs> Ended up ha- like dying of a heart attack, which I'm sure was not related <laughs> to the smoking at all. Hey, it wasn't cancer, Adina. But here's the thing, right? Um, you can say like, okay, whatever. He had these beliefs, and like, you know, maybe he wasn't an, an odious person, but he had all these like influential works and look at his legacy. And I'm like, yeah, look at his legacy, right? We're saying that he shaped the career and the trajectory. Of the science fiction genre, right? Yeah. But, like, what damage did he do, right? Yeah. We know that he denied Samuel R. Delaney a place in this magazine. How many other people, women, people of color who submitted to this magazine were not allowed to publish, right? Yeah. How many stories did he subtly shape by offering this editorial feedback to be more xenophobic, right? To be more paranoid, to be more, like alpha male right Mm -hmm. like a lot of people said that the stories and the things that he promoted in the science fiction genre was very like militaristic was very anti-socialist was very like um rugged individualism right and so we get this like yeah i mean you think of like how mccready's described like as like the bronzed like whatever he man who can like solve any problem and i mean that's just this book alone right and yeah. like the whole kind of like um paranoid they're infiltrating us mm-hmm. like i'm not that you can't have a story no and not like that means that it's a xenophobic thing right but, but- stories like that have been told a lot to be like Oh, Jewish people are infiltrating like the government or yeah. like social circles, and or we're being we're being replaced, right? Yes. as like the white race. Like, yeah, this, this whole idea. Yeah, and science fiction being used as a tool for you know these alt right white supremacist beliefs, right? It's really upsetting, and I think like you really have to think about what this guy did and what the world would have been like if he wasn't you know, in this position of power. Well, I mean, science fiction is just such an interesting genre because you're kind of like reshaping either society or creating a vision of like what the future could be, what uh, people could be like. You're kind of making like big statements and like broad ideas that could be really impactful and they can either be based on like, I don't know, like optimism and hope or like, hey, look what we could achieve. Right. But a lot of times science fiction is like super negative and like cautionary tales or like people's warped perceptions of like what they think are the issues of the world. Right. Yeah. Um, So it is an interesting view into like 
the mind of people, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Found that all very interesting. I appreciate you doing the research on... Yeah, just an awful person. An awful also, human. many people said that he just was, like, really awful to talk to. Like, he would just, like, rant at you, and it was, like, not an enjoyable experience God. to be around him. So, just an all-around odious person. Well, okay, so, like, to, to, to go back to, like, his writing, right? Like, and this is the only thing I've read from him. Uh, I think... A lot of the science fiction aspects of this story are super interesting. Like, a lot of the questions I had while reading this story, like, at one point I was like, would a person who was replaced by the thing, do they even know that they're a thing? Yeah. Or do they just think that they're that person, right? And the book brought up that point. Like, someone speculates on that. Like, would I even know if I got replaced, right? Yeah. Uh, It's asking about, like... The implications of, like, the mind reading and, like, can we work around that? How do we trick them? Like, how do we figure this out? Like, he he gets really into, like, the nitty-gritty of, like, this concept. And a lot of times I found that really interesting. And, like, huge for, like, coming out in, like, the 1930s. Yeah. Like, you think of science fiction from that time being, like, what if aliens existed? Yeah. And that's it. And yeah. this is, like, let's get real into it, right? All of that being said, though, I do find the writing sometimes to be, like... Overly wordy, sometimes confusing as to what's going on. Yeah, it didn't describe the action very well. No, there were points like when the, th- like, it would it would jump around perspectives sometimes, and I kind of couldn't quite follow that. And like, oh, and then this guy rounded the corner, and this is what he saw when he saw McCready. Yeah, it wasn't like a full-on action shot. Like, you don't really get a perspective of what's happening. No, and it, it can be very confusing as to what's going on sometimes. So, like, even though some of the – a lot of the ideas were good, and obviously the movie is based on a lot of those ideas, the book didn't totally work for me. No, I agree. And this is obviously leading into a discussion on which is better, right? Yes. And I, I'm definitely going to say the movie, especially considering the author's background, right? <laughs> I'm sure, like, everybody has their problems, but this man is probably, we can safely say, a villain. A piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I had already, and I, I'm sure you had too, cemented our feelings on yes, which was better. I already was like the movie's better before <laughs> before that information was factored in. Yeah. Um. I mean, yeah, the movie is groundbreaking. It's very entertaining. I love that it's just kind of like about this idea and this concept and this situation, and just kind of keeps like pushing forward. Like at one point, there were discussions on like oh, maybe McCready has this background as, like, a Vietnam War vet who had, like, PTSD and this other stuff happened, and then they were like, nah. Yeah, just forget it. Like, he doesn't need that. Yeah. Like, he's just McCready, you know? Same with all the guys. They're all just, they're all just dudes, right? And they have (laughs) personalities to a degree, but, like, it's just, how does this group of men react react to this situation, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's directed super well, and I'm glad that it has the acclaim that it has now. Yes. I'm glad that public opinion has turned around for sure. And critical opinion yes. as well. Um, so we both have agreed that the movie is better. <laughs> um, I'm going to read our patron Deanna's thoughts on uh, the adaptation. So Deanna says, I first watched Don Carpenter's The Thing alone in my college dorm room late one night and was hooked from the first opening music sting. It's now one of my all-time favorite comfort horror movies, and I've seen it more times than I can count. It's almost impossible for me to read the novella without picturing the characters and scenes from the film, but even so, the novella certainly stands on its own, and I really enjoy reading it every once in a while and highly recommend fans of the film check it out. 
While the film is famous for its creature effects depicting the thing, I think where who goes there and the thing really set themselves apart from each, from other monster and creature feature stories is it's not about the thing itself. It's all about asking yourself who goes there, who's really standing next to you, your friend or an imitation. This constant questioning from both the characters and you as the audience are the true focal point of the story. I believe this especially because it truly doesn't matter who is a thing and who isn't. In the scene where the dog is walking down the hall and walks into a room where we see the silhouette of one of the men, John Carpenter deliberately wanted to keep <laughs> the identity of the person mysterious, so he didn't use any of the actors uh, to cast the shadow. Ultimately, it doesn't matter in the end. It's all about the questioning and the sense of paranoia and that feeling of isolation around the situation. A great snippet of dialogue from the book showcases this theme. After Dr. Copper has discovered that either he or Gary is a thing, after the human immune test... Copper says, I know I'm human. I can't prove it either. One of us two is a liar, for that test cannot lie, and it says one of us is. I gave proof that the test was wrong, which seems to prove I'm human, and now Gary has given that argument which proves me human, which he, as the monster, should not do. Round and round and round and round. Copper finishes by devolving into roars of maniacal laughter. To me, this is the heart of the story, always asking yourself, who goes there? It's for this reason that I chose the movie as my favorite of two versions. John W. Campbell ends his story with a definite, albeit very close, win over the thing. The men destroy it, humans prevail, and the thing is no more. The question is answered. The film after the final battle still leaves us questioning if either Mac, Childs, both, or neither are the thing. Once again, proving the heart of the story is not the monster. The final fight is over, the camp destroyed, but we don't end on a final roar or jump scare from the thing. We end on the quiet, unnerving, paranoid stillness of Childs and McCreevy sizing each other up wondering if they are indeed safe if humans won out. This ending for me is what gives the film the edge over the original story. I think that's perfectly said. Yeah. Especially like the description of the ending. Uh, She also mentions McCreevy's hat, so I'm glad we're not the (laughs) only people (laughs) who were like, what is up with this hat? (laughs) I'll do an illustration, okay? I'll do an illustration and and post it on our Instagram of McCreevy's hat. I'll do it like a slider where you keep sliding to the next image and, and it just bigger. keeps getting bigger. <laughs> oh my God, I'm so excited. I'm locked in now. I have to do it. <laughs> uh, thanks for uh, suggesting this episode, Deanna, and for sending your thoughts. Uh, this was a really good one to do and a great follow up to the ring for our month of October spooky season showcase. Yes. Let's do a quick lightning round. Yeah, let's do lightning. So first up for lightning round, uh, I noticed in immediately watching this movie in the credits that the music uh, was attributed to Ennio Morricone. Mm-hmm. And I recognize that name, but I was like, doesn't John Carpenter do the music for a lot of his movies or all of them? Oh, does he? He does. Yeah. And he's like known for kind of that synthesizer, like, you know, the Halloween kind of music. Uh, but yet yeah, this was the first movie that he handed off like the music to someone else, which wow. he ended up doing music that sounds like John Carpenter would have done anyway. <laughs> the interesting aspect of this is that Ennio uh, Morricone was nominated for a Razzie <gasps> for his score in this movie. What? I mean, probably just people being like, oh, it's just synthesizer. Blah, blah, blah. It's so atmospheric oh, and it's, creepy. It's fantastic. It's great. <laughs> Uh, also, the Razzies are fucking stupid anyway. But apparently, uh, he used some unused music from his score for The Thing later for his score for The Hateful Eight, Quentin Tarantino's movie. Oh, my gosh. And he won an Oscar for that. Oh, my God. So <laughs> <laughs> 
basically the same music got nominated for a Razzie in 82 and then won an Oscar later on. Truly showing how much public opinion has changed. <laughs> has radically shifted. Uh, so next for Lightning Round, I just want to mention that for the book... Um, I mean, it was published so long ago, right? And there was like maybe slightly different versions of it. It was published in a magazine, then it was published in a short story collection later. It's like a novella, right? It's not that long. Um, But they actually found an unfinished manuscript that the author had written um, called Frozen Hell that was like a full book that this was taken from, that the author had like abandoned. So he had a full book idea and then was like, I'll make it a short story. I think so. Or he made the short story and then he made was working on a book, but just never I like see. did anything with it. I don't huh. think he wanted to. They actually did publish it. But I don't know if I would take that really as his vision because it was edited by someone else. Yeah. It was after he died. He didn't really want to make it, obviously. So um, do with that information what you will. I mean, it's interesting because I, I was thinking that, like, there's so much in this short story that, like, could be explored, like, more in a more deep way, right? Like, maybe broader characters yeah. and, like, a tighter analysis of these ideas. I mean, it works well enough as a short story, but I'm like, there is a potential for like a fuller novel here. Yeah. So I'm curious what like the, the plan had been maybe, uh, next up for lightning round. So obviously we talked about the initial backlash to the movie being like really harsh and John Carpenter being very upset by it. But, uh, one in particular was, uh, pretty bad. And that was from Christian Nibby who was the director of the original The Thing from Another World. Oh. And he said, uh, if you want blood, go to the slaughterhouse. All in all, it's a terrific commercial for J&B Scotch, which is that scotch oh that he's gosh. drinking the whole <laughs> That's movie. That's so funny. <laughs> I was like, like, what? Oh, my God. What a burn. Yeah. <laughs> but also kind of true. He is drinking that scotch <laughs> like the whole movie. It really is some great product placement. It is. It really is. Last for lightning round, I just want to mention McCready dramatically doing his like captain's log on the videotape like he's he's being a drama queen he's in like a dark room by himself he's sipping on his scotch right like it's it's very silly yeah no it's it's very um (laughs) very dramatic he's really soaking up the drama right now and especially later on when he's like how dare they think i'm a thing i know Uh, well that's it for lightning round and that's it for this episode thank you so much for listening uh once again a reminder that we are coming out with a bonus episode where we will be talking about the thing from another world the original adaptation of this novella as well as uh ringu the original adaptation of the book ring that was later turned into the american the ring yes so you can get access to that bonus episode coming out soon on our patreon and tons of other bonus episodes that we've done in the past as well Um, We appreciate if you could leave us a star rating or review on your uh, app of choice where you listen to us. And you can find us on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, etc. And you can find all those links at CoverToCredits.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.